This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. I can't tell you what a privilege and blessing it is to, uh, to be a pastor here. Um, I had a couple of conversations with uh, folks who spend a lot of time working with different churches uh, around the state and even the nation uh, the past couple of weeks. And uh, whenever, whenever that happens, you're always regaled with stories. And uh, as these individuals were sharing with me some of the things uh, happening in other churches, uh, I grew increasingly grateful to God for this place and our church. Um, there's, there's some tough stuff that churches and pastors and people have to live through in, uh, all over our state and our country, and uh, in God's grace and goodness, we've been spared um, everything that I heard from these two, we've been spared. And uh, I know that uh, that only fuels my gratitude to God for all of you and uh, I, I want to make sure that you understand that with, with over 600 people who attend our church, it's hard to do this face-to-face with every one of you. And uh, But I want you to know, we are, my family, my wife, my kids, we are blessed to be here. And we are grateful to God for what he has done these last 18 months. And we look forward uh, to what else he has for us to do uh, in our church, in our community, and uh, this part of, of Wisconsin. If you have your Bibles, um, turn to Exodus 26. Exodus 26. I know the the bulletin doesn't reflect that, but you'll understand why here. Um, So Exodus has 40 chapters. Okay? Exodus has 40 chapters. Exodus 25 to 31 are God's very specific instructions about the tabernacle. Exodus 25 to 31, God's very specific instructions about the tabernacle. And then Exodus 32 to 34 is the golden calf incident. And then Exodus 35 to 40 is the construction of the tabernacle. Okay, so that is the kind of the layout for the last part of Exodus. So 13, for Exodus has 40 chapters. 13 of those chapters are dedicated to, to the tabernacle. By far, there is more written on the tabernacle than any other object in the Pentateuch. Reverend Childs, reflecting on this, wrote this. He said, because the Bible is traditionally understood as containing the very oracles of God, no word was regarded as superfluous. It was therefore thoroughly rational to argue that if Genesis needed only one chapter for the creation of the heavens and the earth, but Exodus needed 13 chapters to describe the tabernacle, the Exodus chapters must contain multitudes of hidden mysteries calling for the most detailed commentary. I'm not going to go through all those details today. I'm not going to read all 13 of these chapters either, but I am going to read one chapter. I want to read Exodus 26 just so you get a flavor 
for the nature of this material, okay? Everybody drink their coffee? Okay, here we go. Exodus 26. Make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. All the curtains are to be the same size, 28 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together and do the same with the other five. Make loops of blue material along the edge of the curtain in one set and do the same with the end curtain in the other set. Make 50 loops on one curtain and 50 loops on the end curtain of the other set with the loops opposite each other. Then make 50 gold clasps and use them to fasten the curtains together so that the tabernacle is a unit. Make curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle, 11 altogether. All 11 curtains are to be the same size, 30 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together into one set and the other six into another set. Fold the sixth curtain double at the front of the tent. Make 50 loops along the edge of the end curtain in one set and also along the edge of the end curtain in the other set. Then make 50 bronze clasps and put them in the loops to fasten the tent together as a unit. As for the additional length of the tent curtains, the half curtain that is left over is to hang down at the rear of the tabernacle. The tent curtains will be a cubit longer on both sides. What is left will hang over the sides of the tabernacle so as to cover it. Make for the tent a covering of ram skins dyed red and over that a covering of the other durable leather. Make upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each frame is to be 10 cubits long and a cubit and a half wide with two projections set parallel to each other. Make all the frames of the tabernacle in this way. Make 20 frames for the south side of the tabernacle and make 40 silver bases to go under them, two bases for each frame, one under each projection. For the other side, the north side of the tabernacle, make 20 frames and 40 silver bases, two under each frame. Make six frames for the far end, that is the west end of the tabernacle, and make two frames for the corners at the far end. At these two corners, they must be double from the bottom all the way to the top and fitted into a single ring. Both shall be like that. So there will be eight frames and 16 silver bases, two under each frame. Also make crossbars of acacia wood, five for the frames on one side of the tabernacle, five for those on the other side, and five for the frames on the west at the far end of the tabernacle. The center crossbars to be extended from end to end at the middle of the frames. Overlay the frames with gold and make gold rings to hold the crossbars. Also overlay the crossbars with gold. Set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown you on the mountain. Make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and, the pl and place the Ark of the Covenant law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant Law in the most holy place. Place the table outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle and put the lampstand opposite on the south side. 
For the entrance to the tent, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer. Make gold hooks for this curtain and five posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and cast five bronze bases for them. This is the word of God. To get a better feel uh, for this visually, let me show you a sketch uh, up here. So this is the bird's eye view sketch of the tabernacle. The, the, the big rectangle that goes around all the way around is, uh, it, just inside that is the courtyard. What I really want to draw your attention to is the holy place and most holy place. Let's make a mental picture of that. Um, the most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant was. Inside they put the tablets. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, they put the tablets. Uh, that is the place, the dwelling place of God, the most holy place. And we'll see that here uh, in just a minute. So <laughs> modern people read this, and uh, they can often look at that and say, you know what, this has to be a bunch of hocus-pocus, primitive people nonsense. Uh, it can certainly feel like dry history. Uh, the monotony is you probably got a sense for the monotony of the details can wear down even the most determined reader. However, a child's comment needs to be taken seriously. There are uh, hidden mysteries in here that call for commentary. I'm not going to cover all those. I'm not even going to scratch the surface of all those, but we're going to look at a higher level today. We're going to look at these three things. We're going to look at what the tabernacle conveyed, why we need what it conveyed, and how to pursue what it conveyed the tabernacle conveyed, why we need what it conveyed, and how to pursue what it conveyed. First, what the tabernacle conveyed. Um, we have to do a little bit of Bible study to get underneath the significance of the tabernacle, but once you do that, there exists an incredibly close connection between the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden. Let me, let me draw out some similarities. First, both Eden and the tabernacle were the place of God's presence. Eden is where Adam walked and talked with God. The tabernacle is where, where God's glory descended. In fact, in Exodus 25, 8, God told Israel to build the tabernacle so that he could dwell with them. That's the whole purpose of this, is to create a dwelling place for God. So both Eden and the tabernacle were the dwelling place of God. Second similarity, when, when God put Adam in the garden to work it and to take care of it, those two verbs, work it and take care of it, those are the same two verbs used to describe the work of the priests in the tabernacle. Numbers 3 and Numbers 8. Identical Hebrew words. Work it and take care of it to Adam in the garden. Work it and take care of it to the priests in the tabernacle. Third, after Adam and Eve sinned, God removed them from the garden. And what did he put to guard the entrance to the garden? Cherubim. Stitched into the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place were cherubim. Most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. That's where the cloud of God's presence descended. Give me another similarity. The entrance of Eden faced east. The entrance to the tabernacle faced east. Last, Eden possessed some special stones, gold, resin, onyx. These same stones are found in the construction of the tabernacle. There are numerous other connections, by the way, between Eden and the tabernacle, but this will suffice for now. God's plan at creation with Adam and Eve was for human beings to live in his place, in his presence, under his authority and rule. That is, God's design 
for, for humanity. That is the purpose of creation. For God to exist with his people, for his people to live in his place, under his rule, under his authority. One of the things the connections between Eden and the tabernacle show us is that God hasn't scrapped that plan. The tabernacle is a type of Eden reincarnated. Humanity's sin has not dissuaded God from dwelling with his people. So the tabernacle conveys God's desire to dwell with his people. It conveys his glorious and transcendent presence. Now listen, God's glorious and transcendent presence is your deepest need. What did being in the Garden of Eden signify for Adam and Eve? What did it mean for them to inhabit the garden? It meant life. It meant life. What kind of life? The good life. The good life forever. Not because there was something magical about Eden, but because Eden was God's dwelling place. It's only in the glorious and transcendent presence of God that the good life forever can be found. Now listen, how, how would the tabernacle details have sounded to the Israelites? Don't you think at some point someone among the two million of them would have picked up on the connections between Eden and the tabernacle? The Pentateuch is one a coherent whole of a document. They would have read this from beginning to end. Don't you think at some point they would have, someone would have spotted the connections between the tabernacle they were constructing with very meticulous detail and some of the details laid out in the Garden of Eden? So when they make those connections, what's rolling through their heads? God is bringing back Eden. If you're reading the Bible as an entire story from beginning to end, the million-dollar question you're plagued with at this point in the story is how do we get back into the garden? That's the tension in the plot line. Humanity was kicked out. How do we get back in? Now God is instructing them to build the tabernacle, which has some striking similarities to the Garden of Eden. The people of Israel are thinking, God is bringing back Eden. We're going to be with him again. Life to the full is within reach. This is what the tabernacle conveyed. Second, why we need what it conveyed. One ton of gold, four tons of silver, two and a half tons of bronze, and the finest fabrics available in the ancient world were all used to build this thing. Listen, modern day cost, nearly $70 million. What is that per square foot? $70 million dollars modern day cost opulent oh i think so but every opulent detail came from the mouth of god now obviously the people were not supposed to worship this gold and all the finest materials that went into it that's the point of, by the way of putting the golden calf incident in between the instructions and construction of the tabernacle People would have known the tabernacle was not to be an object of worship itself. It was conveying something about God. Think about it. If this luxurious tent is the locus of God's presence, when you look at it, when you're around it, 
When you're in the outer courtyard, when you watch as the high priest enters the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, what does that do to you experientially? Maybe it causes some fear? There's got to be a sense of mystery about this. For sure, it creates a sense of wonder and awe. By God's meticulous design, there is a wow factor built into the construction of the tabernacle. This, this tabernacle is a functional visual aid, and it's meant to instill the worshipers with a sense of wonder and awe of God. Because God knows he made us with a nearly insatiable thirst for awe. In his book, Contagious, Why Things Catch On, Jonah Berger studied a number of things, but he, st- he wanted to know why some things catch on and others don't. And one of the areas that he studied was restaurants. He wants to know why certain restaurants have so many customers you need two-week reservation to get in and other restaurants fall flat. His answer? Awe. A-W-E. Awe. The wow factor. Human beings innately crave the amazing. We crave the amazing. We're hardwired for it. Listen to these uh, vignettes, series of vignettes. He was five years old. And he was enthralled by the snow. He stood on the couch watching what he thought must be the biggest blizzard ever. As he pressed his nose against the window, he thought of making the biggest snowball ever. Bigger than him. Bigger than his dad's car. Bigger than the garage. So big, he would look like an ant next to it. The thought made him smile. Before long, he was begging his mom to let him go outside. She must have dialed that radio station's number a thousand times with the hope that she would get free tickets to see the best band ever. She had all their recordings. She was a member of the fan club. She had saved up to buy a signed poster, but she had never heard them live. This was her chance. Her heart raced as a voice on the other end greeted her. It was finally going to happen. She couldn't believe it. He baited the hook one last time. It was getting dark, but he had to give it another try. It was out there. He had seen it before. The biggest bass in the lake. It would be the catch of his life. The fish that he had caught were just a tease. He threw his hook into the fading light one more time. As he held onto his pole, he hoped. What do all these people have in common? Awe. They get up every morning. And without thinking about it, they go searching for awe. They search for something that will lead them to say, wow, this is awesome. By the way, this is happening now with the Winter Olympics. Why are people so captivated with Chloe Kim? The half-pipe snowboarder from the U.S. won the gold medal? Watch her. She's otherworldly. With a snowboard, she's amazing. We watch her and we think, wow, wow, this is amazing. That's why people gravitate to their TVs to turn this thing on. They want to see some athlete from someplace in the world do something that makes us say, wow. We're hardwired this way. We crave it. We search for it without thinking about it. But listen, in a broken, evil, sinful world, Awe of God is quickly replaced with awe of self. 
sports stars, entertainers, musicians, politicians, even us in this room. When we're on display, what is it we're after? When the spotlight's on us, what are we after? We can begin to live in awe of watching others live in awe of us. We begin to live in awe of watching others live in awe of us. When the wide receiver for the Minnesota Vikings, Stefan Diggs, caught that touchdown against the Saints, the Minneapolis miracle, you knew I had to say something about it at some point. Do you remember what he did? After I stopped screaming, I made note of that. It was a very interesting reaction. He caught the touchdown, he ran in, he took his helmet off, and he threw it. Remember that? What'd he do? He stood staring at the fans, arms like this, deadpan face. What's he doing? He's living in awe of watching screaming fans live in awe of him. He's living in awe of watching others live in awe of him. When we live in awe of others living in awe of us, we've made ourselves the tabernacle. we live in awe of others, living in awe of us, we've booted God out of his place and we take up residence there. But God didn't wire us to find satisfaction through awe of self. That's part of the point of the tabernacle. An opulent tabernacle serves as a functional visual aid of the awe we were made to experience in response to the nature and actions of God, not the nature and actions of ourselves. Listen, your life will be decimated if you have no awe of God. Let me show it to you. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, starting in verse 13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? Lions have roared, they have growled at him, they have laid waste to his land, his towns are burned and deserted. Also the men of Memphis and Toponies have cracked your skull. Have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Now why go to Egypt to drink water from the Nile? And why go to Assyria to drink water from the Euphrates? Your wickedness will punish you, your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. What God is saying here is remarkable. The lives of the Israelites have grown bitter because they have no awe of God. We need stand in awe of God. The opulent details of the tabernacle are meant to point beyond itself to the unfathomable greatness of God. 
third, how to pursue what it conveyed. Tabernacle is an opulent, functional, visual aid that's meant to captivate us with the glory and the splendor of the God who has created and redeemed us. We live in line with God's design for us as we live in awe of him. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Let me show you some verses from the New Testament. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Of course, these verses are referring to Jesus Christ. The word in the original for made his dwelling literally means tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the true and better tabernacle. Matthew 27, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain referred to here is the curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place. The most holy place was the inner sanctum, the place where God's glory would descend and rest on the Ark of the Covenant. The curtain is the curtain that had the cherubim embroidered into it, that figuratively guarded the way into Eden. Jesus' death tore the curtain and opened the way for us to enter the most holy place. Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Jesus is the tabernacle. He's the dwelling place of God. He himself is God. His death becomes the way we enter Eden again. The dwelling place of God where the good life forever is found. This is one of the many reasons our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. The good life is found by being transfixed with the glory and splendor of Jesus Christ, the true and better tabernacle. And this good life is certainly futuristic but it also has implications for the here and now. The good life offered in Christ can be had in the here and now. Remember, living in awe of others, living in awe of us, leads to emptiness and dissatisfaction because God didn't wire us to be contented that way. If your life's mission is to be a wow factor in the lives of others, you're going to destroy yourself. The distorting effects of sin is going to lead lead us to believe that happiness is found by being made much of. We want to be the wow factor. The result is we end up directing our life efforts in an attempt to get others to make much of us. But God wired us to experience contentment and satisfaction a different way, by living in awe of him. Not living in awe of us. Not living in awe of others living in awe of us. But living in awe of him. My wife and I took a trip to the Grand Canyon. I think I've told you this before. We, that experience was so memorable for me. Uh, we pulled up to the, to the parking lot. Our sight line of the canyon was blocked by a line of trees. 
And, uh, and so we got out. But when, as soon as we cleared that line of trees and I took in the Grand Canyon personally for the first time in my life, I audibly gasped. I don't do that. I audibly gasped. It took my breath away. It was amazing. It was awe-inspiring. To behold this majestic scene filled me with joy. It really did. It's experiences like that that make me realize soul health, joy, happiness, are not found in beholding a great self, but beholding a great splendor. There's no greater splendor than Jesus Christ. To say we want to be a Jesus-obsessed church is another way of saying we want to find true joy. We want to find true soul health. We want to find a deep sense, inner sense of rest. To behold the splendor of Jesus Christ should be our daily desire and our daily task. Because the good life is not found any other way. Let's pray. God, thank you for the joy found in beholding your glory and splendor. Remind us that the desire we all innately have to make much of ourselves only leads to emptiness and frustration. God, I pray that you'd empower us to make good decisions on our use of time and energy, that it may be directed toward beholding Jesus rather than getting others to behold us give you praise for the work of Christ on our behalf. He has made a way for us to enter the most holy place where joy, happiness, and the good life can be found. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace that creates this opportunity. We worship you for it. In Christ's name, amen.